Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. CR Breakfast. Oh, yay. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, Melvin. Good morning. <laughs> nice to be with you all today. It's a great day. It's a great Tuesday. Anya and I are both sick as dogs. <laughs> <laughs> but we're here despite our terrible throats and runny noses. <laughs> the show must go on. Um, Thanks for not leaving me. <laughs> I briefly considered it. But yeah. <laughs> um, you're on Tuesday breakfast, 3CR. Um, it is the 7th of August. Is that right? Sounds right to me. Mm-hmm. It's 7.01 a.m. It's a nice seven degrees outside. Um, And you're joined in the studio by myself, Anya, and George. Hey. (laughs) We're missing two of our very, um, uh, of our team. And it's a pretty special day for For one of our members. Yeah. Uh, Both, actually, I think. Yeah. So Lauren, Lauren Bull, is um, being admitted to the profession today. She's a solicitor as of... Ten this morning. And I think this is um, Ayan's last week at placement as well. So, oh yeah, can we have a repeat of that? Yes. (laughs) So good. (laughs) Um, So fine, we'll we'll forgive them for the absence today. And next week, we're going to have a full house. Mm. And I don't want to get everyone too hopeful, but <laughs> Ruby might also be making an appearance oh as my former Tuesday Breakfast presenter. Amazing. Amazing. So it's going to be, it could be all five of us, the big reunion. A reunion show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great. Well, we're really proud of them and we miss them very much. So we thought we'd dedicate a song to them first thing in the morning. Yes. Mm. And what... Do this, does this song need an introduction? No, let's just play it. <laughs> All right, this is for you, lovely ladies. We look forward to seeing you next week. And that was Beyonce. <laughs> that was for you, Lauren and Ayan. Yeah. And every other girl who's breaking stereotypes and... Saving the world. Yep. Mm. Just generally killing it. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. So on to some news headlines. A ceasefire in South Sudan has been signed between President Salva Kiir and rebel leader Riek Machar. The deal took place on Sunday evening. 
so, sorry, on Sunday, ending the civil war that has claimed the lives of tens of thousands of people. The deal involves a power-sharing agreement in government between Machar's faction and Kia allies. A similar deal was signed in 2015, but did not last longer than a year. The UN supports the deal as a significant step moving forward. Around 180 people who were separated as a result of the Korean War of 1950 to 1953 will finally get the chance to be reunited. This comes out of a summit between the leaders of North and South Korea earlier this year. There have been 20 reunions since 2000, however they stopped following tensions between the two countries in 2015. Following what has appeared to be the attempted assassination of Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro, there are fears of a political crackdown in the region. The president has, has accused his adversaries of launching the attack. Six people have been arrested over the incident. However, thus far, no one has claimed responsibility. And this comes at a time when Venezuela continues to experience significant economic hardship. The decision to print more money has resulted in hyperinflation, and the state has also been suffering from low oil prices, despite having the largest proven oil reserves in the world. A magnitude 6.9 earthquake has killed nearly 100 people, with many more injured in Lombok, an island in Indonesia. This is the second quake to hit the region in the last two weeks, the first resulting in the death of 17 people and damaging hundreds of buildings. Mm. That's news for this week. And we will be talking about Blair Cottrell later in the show, so if you're interested mm. in that story... That's what our alternative news is going to be Getting about. ready, cracking our knuckles for that one. Yep. And <laughs> <laughs> he's very, very prepared. <laughs> and I've got a, another track to play now. Mm. Just uh, grabbing it up. It is by Green Tea Peng. Do you know Mm-mm. them? Um, and it's called Loving Kind. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. Tiny language warning, sorry. And that was Green Tang Peng with a track called Loving Kind. Green Tang is a London-based artist. Pretty, pretty smooth track, that one. And you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast with myself, George, and Anya. And on the line... We have Kate Fitzgibbon, who is a senior lecturer in criminology in the Faculty of Arts at, at Monash University, who is on the line with us this morning to talk about a new report on adolescent family violence. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. F- Thank uh, you Fitzgibbon. Thank you for having me, George. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> so just to start off with, can you tell us a little bit about adolescent family violence? Absolutely. So adolescent family violence as a term describes violence that's used by young people against other members of their family. So that might be parents, siblings, other carers or any other members of the family. And it can really describe a range of different forms of violence that is used to control or coerce or threaten family members. So this can involve a combination of physical violence, property damage, verbal abuse, coercive and controlling behaviours or financial abuse. Mm. And, and is it quite prevalent? 
It's very difficult to know. What our research has been looking at is in what context this violence occurs and what are some of the reasons why parents might be hesitant to report it to police because yeah. we do know that it is significantly underreported. Mm, and I, I'd, I'd imagine it would be quite a sort of difficult thing to have to, to experience this at the hands of your child and then have those questions about whether or not it, you, know, you want to go to authorities on that. Absolutely. So in our study, we spoke with 120 people who had experienced adolescent family violence, and they were predominantly mothers who had experienced it from their young sons. And Mm. they spoke a lot about that tension. Firstly, the tension of knowing when does it actually become a form of abuse and when is it just difficult teenage behaviour. And then not wanting to call exactly, as you say, the police, or any other authorities, because at the end of the day, they're still wanting to protect their child, so they don't want them to be criminalised or arrested. Yeah, and it, and it sounds quite gendered as well, if it's this dynamic where it's often the mother and the and the son who's being abusive, is that right? Absolutely. So our research did support some of the findings of international research that it does have that gender component that we see in other forms of family violence, such as intimate partner violence, whereby mothers in our study were more likely to be victimised by adult males within the home. We did have a um, couple of fathers who responded to our survey and described violence that had been committed against them and their partners. Um, And we also had some instances where either mothers or fathers in our study described violence by their adolescent daughter. But what we really noticed there was kind of an interesting dynamic whereby People describing violence by girls more commonly described verbal violence and property damage that was used as a mechanism for control, whereas mothers describing violence by sons more po- more commonly reported physical violence. Mm, so it plays out in different ways. That's that's interesting. Yes, absolutely. And, and what about some of the other findings? What else did you uh, d- discover in your research? So some of the other key findings that we had was one really just emphasising the impact of this type of violence. So we found that participants in our study described a range of different long-term health and wellbeing implications of adolescent family violence, so including affecting their work patterns, relationship breakdowns, health impacts, but from living in fear, social isolation, and then the kind of more commonly known economical, physical physical and emotional impacts associated with just living and experiencing violence on a day-to-day basis. So our research is certainly really emphasising the severity of this type of family violence. And then I think related to that, probably one of the other key findings that we've made is just the lack of services and interventions that we have in this area so far in Victoria, just in that a lot of families discuss trying to find help beyond the criminal justice system and that there just wasn't any specialised service responses or programs available for them. And that's certainly something that's supported in the findings of the Royal Commission into Family Violence in Victoria in 2016. And really, this research shows that in the two years years since, while we've had a huge amount of progress in other areas of family violence, we're really still lacking in this area. Yeah, and I'd imagine if there is, you know, a bit of a silence in society around this issue, then that would then lead to that lack of support in those services. So there's just a, you know, a whole range of issues in terms of being able to speak out and get information and support. Absolutely. So it is something that we need to talk more about, that we need to acknowledge does happen, and that's 
really difficult for families, in particular in our, particularly in our study, really difficult for mothers that often they carry a lot of feelings of the shame of having a child that's abusive and perhaps some of the stigma associated with that, that it might mean they are a bad mother, that they haven't done a good job in parenting. So it's really important that we talk about and break down all those barriers for people that are experiencing this type of violence. Yeah, and then it sounds it's, it is quite different to intimate partner violence in that sense when it's quite specific dynamics that might lead to that shame or that inability to speak out. If it is coming back to your sort of idea of yourself as a parent and not wanting to think that you've you know failed or done something wrong and then that gendered element with motherhood and the pressures of that. Absolutely, and I think one of the other biggest differences between this type of family violence and intimate partner violence is also that in the majority of cases, the goal is to keep the family together. So whereas in intimate partner violence, you might often see that the goal is for the victim to leave that relationship safely, here the majority of families do want to stay together. They want other members of the household to be safe, but they want to keep that adolescent safely within the home. So that really needs to be kept central in our responses. Mm. And you mentioned just before a little bit about specialised service responses. So what would that look like in terms of adolescent family violence? Yes, so what we found is that a lot of the families experiencing this type of violence have multiple needs that can be quite complex. So they might also be in those families, there might be intergenerational violence where previously one, a male partner has also been violent towards the mother and you're getting that learnt behaviour playing out years or even a decade later. We also found that there were instances of mental health issues, issues around ADHD or autism, so really a complex needs situation for many of these families. So what we need to see is a critical role being played firstly by schools and other education institutions that are really in a privileged position that they see those families on a day-to-day basis. And then also making sure that we really have that wraparound, so whole-of-system support, so on a case-by-case basis we can find out what those families need and provide a range of interventions. Mm -hmm. So it's about prevention as well in terms of education in schools? Absolutely, absolutely it is. And also in terms of preventing intimate partner violence because we know that in some of these families the children had seen violence growing up from a male partner directed at their mother and then years later they then play out that same violent tactics. Yeah. And so in terms of future research, what, what else needs to be done? Absolutely. So we're really hoping to expand on this. We see this as a starting point and certainly the response, including your own interest in our study, has certainly reaffirmed that, that there's a need for more understanding in this area. I think one of the ways in which we're only scratching the surface is understanding how gender impacts the, how people experience adolescent family violence. We know it's important, but we don't yet have a detailed understanding of that. And then the other way is really developing an evidence base around what are effective and targeted responses in this area. So we're certainly hoping to work on that over the coming years. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of questions that have come out of this report that um, can be sort of addressed in future. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time, Kate. It's been really interesting to hear about this report. It's a very recent thing, and we look forward to hearing more information about it in future. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Cheers. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye.
And so that was Dr. Kate Fitzgibbon, who has been involved in a report that's just come out. It's called Investigating Adolescent Family Violence in Victoria, Understanding Experiences and Practitioner Perspectives. We know you love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts, and so do we. They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids and come in black, white, grey and a cool light blue. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order by phoning 94198377 or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. Hey, what are you doing for National Science Week this year, Stu? Well, one thing I was going to do was go to the Lost in Science Trivia at the Birmingham on Monday the 13th of August. What time is that on again? It starts at 7.30, but get there at 6.30 so you get a good night of trivia and fun. See our Facebook page for more information. The 2018 Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is on the 11th of August at the Brunswick Town Hall. Stalls, books, projects and organisations fighting for a better world, here and abroad. Come for the stalls, stay for the workshops. Topics ranging from Indigenous struggles and decolonisation, climate change, anti-racism, unions, feminism, refugees, Anarchy 101 and so much more. Interested in a stall? Email us on info at amelbournebookfair.org That's info at amelbournebookfair.org Or message us on our Facebook page Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair 2018 A 3CR supporter And we're back at Tuesday Breakfast So that ad we just heard Mm. The Anarchist Book Fair Are you going? I think so I think it's going to be a Tuesday breakfast excursion by the yeah. sounds of it. This could be an early reunion for us. Yeah. <laughs> I'll come after moving. I've never been before. Have you been? No. I don't really know what to expect. That's exciting, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. I've seen a lot of um, stuff on Twitter about what um, to expect, but yeah, it'll be really good. Yeah. Yeah. Good vibes? Yeah. All right. I'm excited. Mm. <laughs> Um, so, we've got another track to play. It's by Alicia Joy, who is the singer from 3070, who we love at Tuesday Breakfast and we play a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, this tune is called Selfish, and I think that it came out this year. Enjoy. And that was Alicia Joy with Selfish, such a great tune. And so I've got a couple of numbers just to give out because we have a lot of interviews today on the topic of family violence. And the first number is for... Oh, sorry. 
<laughs> the usual technical issues when the next song plays. Um, why Women's Information? It's a great referral service if you just want to have a chat and get some numbers or get the information about any service, any issue that you're experiencing for any um, woman or non-binary person. And the number is 1300-134-130. If you're in immediate danger as well, there is Safe Steps, which is open 24-7, and it's a family violence response centre. Its number is 1-800-015-188. That's one eight hundred zero one five one double eight. Amazing. Um, next up, we're going to be talking to Alina Thomas, who is the CEO of Engender Equality. Um, so recently, there was an Age article about the Tasmanian government's attempt to challenge a Supreme Court ruling about what. Um, violence in the context of family violence means, um, especially as it pertains to victim compensation schemes. Um, so we have Alina Thomas, CEO of Engender Equality today, to talk about it. Um, Alina is, uh, has an established career in the community sector with over 18 years of experience across a range of health and community programs with a focus on women's services. Um, Alina has developed a sound standing as a spokesperson on domestic violence and gender inequality in Tasmania. In her representation of women, violence and anti-oppression, Alina considers the diversity of the community and strives for inclusion and equal access of all women, regardless of their lived experience, identity or socioeconomic background. Thank you so much for joining us today, Alina. Thank you. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about um, gender equality and the work that you do? Yes, thank you. Um, so, Gender Equality is a um, it's a small uh, a small organisation that operates across Tasmania. We have offices in Hobart, um, Launceston, and Burnie. And our Burnie staff person uh, also outreaches from um, another a number of the towns around in the northwest of Tasmania. Um, we have there's three definite arms to the organisation. One is a, um, a, a the core service of providing counselling services to people who have experienced family violence. So um, people who are struggling with some issues that might have come from an experience of family violence can ring up the service and uh, make an appointment to talk to a, a qualified therapeutic counsellor. And that process can be a, a, a one-off sort of safety check or it could be just a, I'm unsure of how things are going in my relationship um, and I need to talk to someone... Or it, or, or it can be right something that goes on for, for a number of years, helping in a long-term recovery from from the from the impacts of family violence around um, post-traumatic stress disorder, mm. um, anxiety, sleeping, and um, you know the, those kind of um, really um, you know life-changing mental health issues. Mm. The other thing that we do is um, training. So we try to get involved in the primary prevention of family violence. So talking to people about the drivers of family violence, talking to, um, so we can go to organisations, schools, we work alongside other community organisations to try and raise awareness of family violence Mm -hmm. around what the sort of contemporary practices are, what the issues are, um, trying to engage a broader community in um, discussions about gender equality or gender equity. Mm -hmm. Um, And the the third thing we do um, is around that that broader actual systemic advocacy where we, 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 we participate in research, we um, contribute submissions, we um, 
try and talk to the government and mm. affect change around policy and service mm. um, service um, design so that we can be maximising um, the impact on the community to actually be reducing, you know, the impact of family violence, which is from so that from family so that family violence isn't happening in the first place, mm. through to you know when it is happening, how we can be reducing the the harms and the impacts there. Mm. Mm. Amazing, amazing. Um, let's talk about the the Tasmanian government's challenge to the Supreme Court ruling that the definition of violence is capable of including more than just physical acts of harm. Can you just maybe talk about what this challenge is about and what the government is trying to do? Yeah, so, look, I mean, it's a, it's a, a lot of it is um, comes from our use of language and the language that's um, evolved over the last, um, you know, four, four decades or so around family violence. Mm-hmm. So we, we use the term family violence in, in Tasmania because that's what our act so that's where all the family violence services that are that are funded through um, government, etc., would would sort of refer to family violence because that's what we've chosen here. But it's um, even the term violence in itself, obviously, for the way that we use that in everyday language, we think of violence as being um, physical violence of, of it actually being assault. But mm-hmm. when we're actually talking about family violence, it, we, it, it, the, the, the definition has been broadened to an extent. Um, th- so that now it includes um, non-physical violence. So it's, um, it's, it's emotional abuse, it's psychological abuse, it's social isolation, mm. it's, um, it's uh, spiritual abuse. So it's, it's a whole uh, financial abuse. So it's sort of, it is, um, even though we're continuing with that term, we, we are referring to a, a broader range of behaviours than just physical assault. So that is actually, that's described under our fam- the Family Violence Act in Tasmania. We talk about emotional abuse, we talk about financial abuse. Mm. Um, so what, what, what's happened is that there, there's been a push for um, non non <laughs> non-violent forms of family violence and so non-physical forms of fam- family violence to be included mm. in victim compensation so that when somebody um, has successfully gone through through court um, on a on a um, and somebody uh, the, the per- person who's perpetrated the abuse um, has been prosecuted that the the, vic- the so-called victim in that circumstance can um, claim for compensation even when the for the non non-physical forms of violence. Mm. But the Tasmanian government contested that and um, wanted to restrict the um, claims only to physical forms of violence and abuse. Mm. That's that's messed up. Um, So the way I understand it is that the government is fine with family violence being broader than just physical violence in the Family Law Act or that sort of jurisdiction but want it limited to physical violence in the context of compensation for victims to reduce or restrict the number of payouts that they can provide. Is that is that right? Look, that's the, that's the best explanation that I've got for it as well. Mm. Um, the only other thing that I can imagine that's happening is that perhaps the government's got uh, another plan that they're wanting to enact over the next few months that's going to you know, come to a similar outcome, but I can't, I don't know what that, that, that is, and I haven't received any communication back mm. from the Department of Premier and Cabinet here mm. about what their plans are, so I actually don't know. Yeah, it seems pretty absurd that, you know, given all the increasing media attention and general understanding of what family violence is about, that it comes in so many forms other than just physical violence, that the government is trying to limit the definition. Do you, do you know why this is happening? No, I, no, I don't, and, and the, you know, the reality is that it's 
extremely difficult to get a successful prostitution mm. for emotional abuse, for psychological abuse. Mm. Um, we've in, since the Family Violence Act, um, that Family Violence Act was um, became around came around in 2004. Mm. Excuse me. And over that period, there's been 60 charges, and I don't know how many prosecutions. So there's only been 60 charges, and and the rate of um, the number of successful prosecutions that come from charges is, is usually less than 50 percent. Mm. So we're talking about a very small number of people, mm. um, and that you know that in itself talks to a flaw within the system. Mm. Um, but um, so I, it does, so to me, I'm, I'm unclear of why um, you know that that sort of the financial argument about it doesn't mm. really hold because we're not talking about uh, about um, enormous numbers of people mm. at all. Um, look, I think that we are, you know, I think we, we, this is such a um, a new and pioneering phase for us, for us to be in around family violence. You know, we can really say that over the last, you know, that this. The interest and the new way of thinking and addressing family violence has really only come about in the last three or four years. Mm-hmm. Like it's a very new idea, and I guess that um, you know that we need to be really open to trying a, a, a really wide range of, of of responses. But but part of that does have to be um, to be providing to be providing a response, whether it's a service response or a legal response or a or a um, you know a, a personal response to people who have mm. experienced emotional abuse or coercive control and there's a whole pattern of behaviours that go around that. Mm. We need to be acknowledging that and then responding appropriately. Mm. Otherwise, we're we're just we're going to be working in this idea that you know if it's not an assault and if you if you're not being hit, it's not that bad. Mm. Or if you're not being physically assaulted, then you know you can probably put up with it a little bit more than you have been. Mm. Kind of attitude, and that's really concerning for us. Mm. Um, and. I was going to ask, that was my next question really, so this move by the government, if successful, is going to affect survivors in so many ways, especially women who already have difficulties accessing any sort of compensation schemes or options due to structural inequalities, for example. Um, so what should the government be doing instead, instead of limiting the already limited access to such monetary assistance? Because the way I understand it is that these compensation schemes offer more than just money. They also offer counselling and access to other support services, don't they? Yes, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, I, think you, I think there can be um, there's sort of a bit of a plan or there can be a number of different elements to it, for sure. Mm. Look, I think that there's a lot of problems with the, with the, with the legal system around this particular issue. So when somebody, generally if there is something like if there's a crime has been committed, that's looked at in terms of an incident that it started at a point and it finished at one point and there should be a body of evidence around that incident that describes it as a crime. Now, what's the problem with emotional abuse or coercive control and psychological abuse is that there's not necessarily an incident. There's not necessarily something that you can collect evidence on. Like, you know, it's difficult to be able to record or um, Mm. document a a threat, you know, or or um, or something that's like a constant undermining of someone's self-worth isn't something that's really, you know, one, it's not something you'd call the police on because nothing actually you know, tangible is happening. Mm. Um, and part of that process as well is women are feeling, or, or people who are experiencing that level of abuse, are feeling really undermined and unconfident confident and unsure of themselves. And that's one of the, that's one of the tactics. Like that's one of the aims of, of that dynamic that mm. that's occurring. So there's that person's self is getting um, eroded anyway. So the, the legal system is 
struggles with that, you know. It looks for very hard evidence. It wants sort of very tangible things. Mm-hmm. The other thing about the legal system, which we find very difficult, is because, is the idea that, you know, under the eyes of the law, we're all, we're all equal. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we're not all equal. We come, you know, through life with different privileges, with different um, access to power, with different, you know, all those different... <clears throat> like social conditions and so forth means that once we get to court we're not all equal some mm-hmm. people always will have more power than other people mm-hmm. so that's very difficult also to guide the, the people with the less power through those systems when they're feeling that sense of oppression is, is internalized and it's, it's internalized on the individual level but it's also internalized in that institutional level as well mm-hmm. so the solutions to that are one Reducing the uh, reducing family violence in the first place, so that people aren't getting to court, mm. and that's through primary prevention, it's through early intervention, it's through being having enough services available to be able to um, help people um, <clears throat> change change the circumstances that they're in or work differently with the circumstances that they're in, so it's not escalating to the court, which mm. is obviously excludes a lot of people. It doesn't it doesn't really meet a sense of you know justice or um, or fairness around that. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, um, once people are getting to court, to, to be providing really adequate support through that system mm-hmm. um, so that we're reducing the bias of magistrates and judges, that people are supported through a, through a system that isn't re-traumatising. At the moment, the, the counsellors that, um, that we have will say that they, when, they, when, they're, when they're working with somebody who's going through the court system, 50% of the time is spent counselling the, you know, the traumatic mm-hmm. um, impact of the family violence and 50% of the time is spent um, counselling around the traumatic impact of the court. Mm-hmm. Like it is a really harrowing and um, disengaging, uh, disenfranchising experience for people, mm-hmm. which obviously puts a lot of people going off that system, through that system anyway. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so there's, I, I want to see um, a greater emphasis put on, um, you know, earlier responses. You know, we've got a very sophisticated police response. You know, we've, we've got a lot of money invested in, in um, you know, in that, that, that formal and um, legal, the legal systems and the police systems. We've got coordinating units of government departments down here. Um, but I would like to see more put into the community, building capacity as community and helping communities, you know, be more peaceful, be, be, be non-violent. And that's what's going to reduce family violence in the long run. Mm, absolutely. And we're just going to have to wrap up now, Alina. But before we do, how can people get in touch with your organisation? Oh, well, we're, we're in flux with changing our website. So please don't Google us because <laughs> there's nothing out there. Um, but we were formerly known as Support, Help and Empowerment, which is She for short. Mm-hmm. And our She website's still available. We do have an gender equality um, profile on Facebook, which mm-hmm. is which is active, and um, our phone number is um, 0362789097. And I, 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 it's a, it's something that I really enjoy talking about. So if anybody did want to um, get in touch, I'd be really happy to continue the conversation. Beautiful. We'll put all of those details up on our Facebook page. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lena, and all the best. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thanks. That was Alina Thomas, CEO of Engender Equality. Um, Like promised, we'll put all of these details up on Facebook. Able-bodied Australia does not realise that people with disabilities across the board are being discriminated against. Then the government to demand that we go out and get a job 
without removing the disincentives like the lack of access to transport and community infrastructure, without providing accessible buildings that can provide barrier-free employment. I'm not getting a fair go and I don't like it and I'm saying so. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55 on the AM Dial. You're listening to Tuesday Brekkie. So up next, we have an interview that Hope did. So Hope was a presenter on Tuesday Breakfast last year. And this is an interview that she did with the creator of The Fall, which is a docudrama which is coming to Melbourne very, very shortly. It looks absolutely fantastic. I'll let the interview speak for itself. We'll be back in 10 for 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, I have Tando Mango. Tando is an actress, director and theatre maker. Hi Tando, thank you for speaking with us on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Hi Hope, thank you for having me. So, um, as you know, my name is Tando. Um, I am, you've introduced me very well, but I, uh, as a director, actress and theatre maker, uh, but I'm also co-writer of The Fall, uh, which is coming to Melbourne um, this coming August. Great. And for our listeners, can you tell us what The Fall is based on and what inspired you to do a production about it? So The Fall is based on uh, the decolonial uh, fallist movements that happened throughout the country in 2015. Um, and... Uh, what inspired us was, um, while we were students at the time of the decolonial movements, um, and it was a way to, uh, kind of bring, um, an inside look, um, into, an inside story into the movements, um, that the media didn't quite capture well. Uh, so the Roads Must Fall movement, uh, was kind of, uh, sparked in 2015 um, and basically uh, it's it's a decolonial movement um, and it spans um, across many different topics such as uh, racism within institutions, um, fees, uh, symbolism in like geographically and um, infrastructurally and everything yeah so that's what so that was the roads must fall movement um and then it branched out into other different fallist movements such as the patriarchy must fall movement and the fees must fall movement yes 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 um what kind of sparked it was actually um a statue um and then it led to a whole lot of um unification from students um and a whole lot more questions being asked around like what's in our curriculum um what are the symbols um around us um how are we how are we being treated differently in university how is access different um according to the history of the country and everything mm. um so symbols that really sparked all of this and how has the production been received in south africa so um locally it's been received very well uh so we've toured locally 
Um, and we also won a Florida Cup Encore Award, which was actually made, um, it was an award actually, uh, introduced after the fall, um, was, uh, written. So we were one of the first winners of the Encore Award, um, the Florida Cup Encore Award the next year. Mm. Um, and then, uh, by locals, it's also been received very well. Um, and people have been quite appreciative of the fact that, um, it's quite informative. Um, and it gave them, yeah, an inside look into something that, uh, they weren't really that informed about. Mm. And in terms of students now, what, what has the change been like in terms of students' voices being heard? Um, it's been quite, uh, it's been quite varied. Um, so, I mean, after the movements, uh, there was a lot more, uh, security, um, like enforcement in universities. So protests were kind of uh, shut down like really quickly. Uh, but there is a lot of awareness amongst students and on the level, on a kind of student level. Uh, and I guess sort of in some ways institutionally. Um, in the few ways, uh, but yeah, um, it's been met with uh, backlash. Sometimes backlash, sometimes acceptance. Mm. Um, I guess it depends who you're talking to. Yeah. Mm. And um, how has it been received internationally? Um, internationally, it's also been received well. Uh, we, so last year we toured, um, to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, um, and there we were, um, we received, uh, we were nominated for a few awards. Uh, so we were long listed for the Amnesty Award. Um, we won the Stage Edinburgh Cast Award, and we won the Scotsman Fringe First Award. That's that's really amazing. And have you ever been to Melbourne before? Uh so no, um I've never we've from the cast, um, not that I'm aware of, we've never um uh, we've never um been to Melbourne before. Um and yes, I haven't been with the cast myself at the moment because I'm busy studying my MA, but I will be joining you for August. And what are you looking forward to doing or experiencing here? Um, I'm just looking forward to experiencing a different culture. I mean, it's always great to uh, be in a different country, um, experience a completely different time zone. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm just looking forward to that. Um, I'm, yeah, like I said, I'm always looking we're as the cast even we're always looking forward to just experiencing something new and what can listeners expect from uh the play from the production okay cool um well you can so the style is in um south african protest theater style there's a lot of um and it's a workshopped play um there's a lot of singing 
Um, it's a documentary, uh, sort of verbatim style play. So like I said, it was workshopped from all of our experiences. So yeah, the style is like a mesh of like documentary, um, and South African protest theater. Um, so yeah, you can expect a kind of revamp of like Barney Simon style theater. Um, and I'd also like to add that um, the cast is also giving a two-hour interactive workshop on the 31st of August on decolonization. Um, so you, that's what you can expect from us as a group. Wow, that's amazing. For our listeners, can you please tell us where we can go to find out more information about the production in Melbourne as well as, well as avenues to connect more with the work that you do? Sure. So um, you, could, you can connect on the Baxter uh, website. Um, so it's uh, the Baxter Theatre Centre. Uh, the Theatre Centre is also on Facebook um, and on Instagram. Um, and then in our individual capacities, we also promote um, the show there. Uh, so there are three pages you can connect on. You can connect on the Baigizi, um Arts Collective. Um, you can connect on Age of the Artist, and you can connect on the Furies. Great. We'll have all those links up for our listeners to the show, and they can access that information. Uh, the fall will be held at the Arts Centre between 28 August and the 2nd of September. Um, and as Tando has just said, there's an amazing interactive workshop on the 31st. And I know that on the 29th, uh, after the show, you'll be having a Q&A. Um, yes. Yes. And we're also yeah. really looking forward to speaking with you and the rest of the cast uh, for another show with Women on the Line. I look forward to that. Thank you so much for the interview. And if you're just tuning in to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, we were speaking with Tando Mangu, an actress, director, and theater maker, as well as co-writer and co-cast curator for The Fall, a play that will be on at the Arts Center from the 28th of August till the 2nd of September. Check it out. Hi, I'm Maurice. And I'm Mario. And we're Chronically, Chronically Chilled. Chilled a program that aims to provide a platform to those living with chronic and invisible illness, as well as exploring topics that impact on our daily lives. Listen to Chronically Chilled, the first Wednesday of every month at 6pm. And we're back at Tuesday Breakfast. Hope if you're listening, thank you so much for providing that interview. I'm so excited, I really want to get tickets. Do you want to go see yes. it? Yes. Yep, yeah. so later in August? Let's make it happen. All right, yeah. let's do it. So I've got another track to play now, and this mm. one I discovered from Hip Sister Hop. Nice. <laughs> so such great tunes, and there's also um, uh, like playlists available on music apps, which oh, I won't great. say because mm. I think I'll be advertising them maybe. Um, <laughs> but you can check that out. You can go to Hip Sister Hop, um, the Facebook page, and mm. there's a link there. This track is called Subway Art, and it's by Tish Hyman. Ah
And that was Tish Hyman with Subway Art. Great tune, very, very emotional. I've been listening to it on repeat for like a week. (laughs) So on the line we have Jill and Mary Claire from Queer Space who are here to talk about the perpetrator space. Hi, Jill and Mary Claire. Hi. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. You're welcome. So, first off, I know we have we have a regular slot with Queer Space, and this is our third one, I believe. But just in case we have listeners that haven't heard the first two, can you just give us a bit of information on what Queer Space is? Okay. So, um, Queer Space is in Drummond Street Services, and we've been working with LGBTIQ people and their families for over a decade. Um, and our work's constantly evolving as we learn from the people we work with and the research as it develops and evolves too. Um, and we've been developing a family violence services service there that's LGBTIQ inclusive. And we've learned from our respective communities and the research that is available that the current approaches to family violence and intimate partner violence are not very responsive to or inclusive of our clear relationships and experiences. And that's so important to have services that are specialised in this way, like Queer Space, which is run by members of the LGBT community who you know, have that lived experience and can support other people around issues like family violence. Yeah. And so... Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I was just going to say that um, that overwhelmingly the research into family violence perpetration for gender diverse populations um, is centred on prevalence rather than the dynamics of the violence in those contexts. And there's really very little evidence for effective interventions for perpetrators with complex underlying contribu- contributors and needs. Like, it's just very new work. Right, so that must make it difficult then in terms of support. What what is the purpose? Sorry, the perpetrator space. What is what is this project? Um, so very recently, we received some funding from the Department of Justice initially um, to develop a program to work with um, cisgendered women, lesbian women, um, bisexual women, intersex people, trans women, and men. Um, and to work with people who've been enacting violence, um, so people who've harmed others. However, in that space, what we understand is that um, in terms of the prison population for this community, like over 97% of uh, particularly women in prison um, have experiences of child sexual abuse with a direct relationship with um Revictimization through domestic and family violence and then directly uh, links to their offending behaviour. So what we're wanting to do is provide programs that support those who've been perpetrating violence, which will reduce recidivism and support people who've enacted violence to take responsibility for their violence. However, you know, generally, um, programs in this space have been uh, men's behaviour change programs, so they've been... Um, informed by a feminist gendered approach, which we would certainly support. However, what we understand is that those pathways and the topologies 
of uh, these, this particular cohort may well be different. So we may well not be looking specifically at entitlement um, and uh, the need for power and control as the initial driver. It might be that um, the use of violence is retaliative or it may be reactive. So we're, we're, what we're trying to do is work in these contexts. There's been some work internationally um, that's been done by uh, in the United States by a woman called Dr. Stephanie Covington. So we're really leaning off the back of that work, but very much informed by the participants um, around what will be meaningful, what will be respectful, and what will be the transformative elements of change. Wow, and that stat, 97%, that's huge. It is huge, isn't yeah. it? Yep, and to then be considering what are the reasons behind violence and is it having experienced certain situations like abuse or whatever, like that it seems like such an important thing to do to understand what's actually going on and be able to support people through through this. Absolutely. And you know, like today our understanding is that, you know, gender is an effect of structures of patriarchy and power. So we we do want to honour and acknowledge and build on the work of over 50 years of women's responses to intimate partner violence and family violence. But I suppose what we're really recognising strongly is that um, the importance of a gendered approach is still relative. However, it has currency within heteronormative relations. And so when working with women and with the LGBTIQ communities, this is very new ground. So we want to consider what's offered up, you know, by these frameworks, but also see um, what might be the limitations of a gendered lens um, in this particular space. So we know that, um, that it's harmful and reduction of stereotypes and assumptions about power dynamics and gender roles may well not, not be a full explanation and it may not well not come, it may not well not support the complexity of people's lives, um, it might uh, present a blindness to intersectionality and difference, um, it might result in the misidentification um, of those very binary terms of um, perpetrator and um, victim and often there's an assumption that the very butch person may well be um, the more masculine perpetrator and the feminine person presenting may well be the victim. Um, so, you know, those are the kind of complexities you know, that sit within this space. Mm. And that seems like a really good way of moving forward in terms of still taking some of these ideas from the feminist gendered approach, but also taking it further and looking at other factors and the bigger picture to sort of get a sense of how, you know, how how this violence works and, and how support can be, you know, given out. So also you're influenced by Catherine Hodes and Ellen Pence, is that right? Can you tell us a little bit about their work and how it relates to this issue? Yeah, so with the work of Ellen Pence, she was um, one of the co-founders of the Duluth model. And one of the things that she worked with with other feminists was to develop what's called the four pillars. And those four pillars... Um, are the conditions that within a society allow one group of people to be consistently violent to another group of people. And they are things like the sense of entitlement or superiority that people may hold and expectation of submission and 
objectification, so that's when one considers the other less than or not worthy of basic respect and dignity, and then the lack of consequences. So the ability for those at the top of a hierarchy to use punishment, violence or coercion without consequences. And when, so, um, not Catherine, Alan Kent and other theorists at the time came up with those ideas and they don't just work across violence but they work across race or disability when you have that sense of entitlement or superiority or, um, you know, the expectation of submission of the other. But what's happened to those four pillars over time, because that was in the 80s that those um, people came up with that, is they've been subsumed into the gender lens. So they've been subsumed into ideas of men and masculinity that hold those senses of entitlement and expectation of submission. And then women and femininity has been put into the victim role. And so what's happened with the gender lens is it's been kind of narrowed down into those ideas and it's gone into a binary of women and men rather than an analysis of the structures that support the behaviours. And so what we are looking at is how do we use those four pillars and take them out of that very tight binary when we're working with people who have more complexity in their lives than that tightness. And then we looked at the work of Catherine Hodes. And Catherine Hodes is a, a social worker from the US. And what she talks about and encourages practitioners to do is to explore the context, the objective, and the impact of what's happening, so the intimate partner or family violence. And her position is that if we explore that, the context, the impact, and the objective, we get a much more nuanced idea of what's happening. We can have greater engagement over, you know, just a shallow engagement, and she says that if we pay attention to the order of events, the complexities of the situation, you know, comes it unfolds and we get to see it. And then this enables us to out, to ask questions of someone without leading the people to fit our framework or our interpretation. And she says that these questions they don't obscure the abuse, but they also do not assume it, and that there's, there's um, information is revealed by the order of the event. And so what we try and do is, you know, we examine the details, we ask interactive questions in person and understand the, the events so that we can begin to differentiate so that we're not just holding those very tight binaries of, you know, if it's masculine, it's um, it's the abusive person. Um, and she has some very good questions that um, she suggests that we use, you know, about asking what was happening when the behaviour occurred or what happened before, what was the outcome and what is the context and who makes the decisions, how would you describe your partner and what usually leads up to a fight and how do they end. So they're much broader questions so that we can get um, a kind of deeper picture of what's happening rather than going in with our assumptions. That so seems, yeah, I that seems so so powerful, just 
the the yeah. idea of not making those assumptions, particularly for the LGBTIQA plus community. Yeah. I'm just wondering, as a last question, because we will have to wrap up, this is really, really interesting stuff to hear about in terms of the theories behind violence. I just want to ask, in terms of those ideas that Pence put forward with the um, yeah. the domestic abuse intervention project, in terms of entitlement, superiority, objectification, lack of consequences, do you think these ideas are still applicable in um, LGBTIQA plus intimate partner violence, or do you think we sort of need a new, a new way, a new theory of thinking about why this violence occurs? Um, you know, I think I think they're applicable, but I also think that you know we've all we've all been socialised through you know patriarchal discourses that have shaped how we understand ourselves and how we view the world through our own social construction of gender. So I think there's an applicability, but it is that we need to be uh, understanding the complexity and so drawing on other frameworks so that we don't conceal and conflate, you know, the dynamics that occur in relationships, particularly when we're working with communities who are already othered and sit outside of the dominant discourse of heteronormativity. Yeah. And then when, when we make assumptions about what violence looks like and what a perpetrator looks like, that puts people mm-hmm. at, at, at risk. Um, and just Absolutely. quickly, I know you wanted to talk about with respect. Could you just mention quickly about that before we wrap up? Sure. So with respect is a partnership that Drummond Street is the lead agency and it was um, came from funding from the Royal Commission into Family Violence and so it's a partnership with... Um, Thorn Harbour Health, Switchboard and Transgender Victoria to provide an LGBTIQ um, intimate partner and family violence service. And so we've named it with respect and we're launching it on Monday the 3rd of September. (laughs) Fantastic. Thank you so much. And for anyone listening... um, who might be going through something in terms of, you know, violence in terms of what we've been talking about, would it be best to call Queerspace? Is that a service that they can call? Yes, yes. And the number is 1-800-LGBTIQ. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Jill and Mary Claire. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show this morning. Thank you for your time. You're very welcome. Thanks, George. Thanks, George. Bye. 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 And so that was Jill and Mary Claire from Queer Space talking about the Perpetrator Program. Such important, such an important topic. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. Hey, what are you doing for National Science Week this year, Stu? Well, one thing I was going to do was go to the Lost in Science Trivia at the Birmingham on Monday the 13th of August. What time is that on again? It starts at 7.30, but get there at 6.30 so you get a good night of trivia and fun. See our Facebook page for more information. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio 
celebrating 40 years of 3CR is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. 3CR's Radical Radio book is now on sale for just $30. You can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history on sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. That was a terrible fade out. I need to practice that better. I want to listen to that song longer, but I know that someday, we'll time. someday we'll have time. For that. <laughs> Can we play it to the very end? Yeah. <laughs> All right. What's up today? Well, um, we were going to talk about the Sky News segment mm. um, where they interviewed Blair Cottrell. Mm-hmm who is described as a far-right activist. Yes. Although we all know what that's code for, don't we? Yes. Neo-Nazi. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> He's the proud leader of this um, really um, trash group called the United Patriots Front. Mm-hmm. And he was invited onto um, the show for a studio interview um, and spoke a lot about, you know, the usual topics about winding back on immigration, protecting countries against foreign ide- ideologies, etc. Yeah. Really, really, really harmful stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And um, within hours of the interview going to air and being shared very widely by Sky News, um, there was a lot of noise that was made on various social media platforms. And then the channel removed the interview and um, said something like, oh, I was wrong to have him on, on air and his views do not reflect ours, but didn't actually say sorry. I think they last night I saw an update. Oh, did they? I think okay. that they, they say we regretted our decision and they've also decided that he's no longer allowed on the program. And I think they've actually um, sort of removed the show for the meantime, mm. I think. So they, it, it was a bit of a delayed response. Mm. It makes me wonder if, you know, it was all part of the plan as well. Like airing something, um, promoting it, and then removing it. Because it already has the impact. Yeah. It's like having your cake and eating it too. Yeah. And then it gives all these people the... the, the impetus to be like, oh, look, it's our free speech being trampled on. Look at the leftists. They've done it again. Yeah. Yeah. And it's scary because, you know, I guess this is the argument that's being made in a lot of these articles we've been reading. Mm. The idea that it's normalizing racism and bigotry in our country. It's mm. not simply a question of free speech. It's who are you allowing to have on your show mm. and what kinds of ideas are you allowing them to speak about? Mm. And there has to be a limit, you know. It's really, it's really disturbing. I wanted to mention 
I was reading an article in The Guardian. Mm. It was by, it's by Robert Mann, who is from La Trobe University. And I think this is a really interesting quote that I want to um, just read out mm. because I think for me and I, I imagine for other young people listening, it's a bit more difficult to sort of understand what the media climate would have been like, say, 20 years ago mm. when you haven't really lived through it. Um, but he said that, so I'm quoting from now, on January... 6, 1966, a letter written by the pre-selected Liberal Party candidate for Ipswich, Pauline Hanson, was published in the Queensland Times. It claimed nothing more than showering the admittedly once-wronged Aboriginal people with money, facilities and opportunities not available to other Australians and harming them and causing racism. The letter caused pandemonium at Liberal Party headquarters. Hanson was stripped of her pre-selection. The rest, as they say, is history. Today, such a letter would barely be noticed by anyone. Mm. So just that difference in climate that at that time, mm. that sort of rhetoric was not allowed at all. But now it's happening everywhere. It's, it's normalised with our politicians. Yeah. 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 And that we're not going forward in this, in this area. Mm. Yeah. And also I think it's, it's important to keep in mind the context of the different group of people they're being demonized and um and hurt this time round. And um there's this great panel that, that I went to last week and um about the hashtag African gangs and, you know, um why that's that's such an important issue and how, how to talk about it. And one of the things that the panelists talked about was that how the um you know, the African gangs rhetoric has been so readily accepted in the community because there already exists a very dominant anti-black um, narrative in the country and that's why it's it's happening so quickly and so so powerfully as well and I think that's something that you know we should keep in mind. Right so there's already sort of this thing simmering under the surface and mm. then this really brings that out if there's already that bigotry there yeah. you only need a couple of these shock jocks or you know yeah. neo-nazis to sort of come out from under the woodwork and start talking about this sort mm. of stuff and people get behind it. Mm. The other point that I wanted to raise that I think is relevant for this conversation, I guess, looking at the bigger picture in terms of where the media is at at the moment, mm. um, is the fact that we do have such a concentrated media industry here in Australia. And I was reading some stats that were done in a 2016 study, mm. which showed that Australia is ranked, it's around 10th um, for having the most, you know, 10th most concentrated media industry. And for newspaper ownership, it's third. And the only two countries above it mm. are China and Egypt, who both have a media that's largely owned by the state. Mm. So in terms of freedom of informa information, you know, diversity of voices in our media, we just don't have it. I mean, that's a really... That's really, really high mm. in terms of those glo global stats. In good company, hey? Yeah. <laughs> China and Egypt. Mm. Yeah. And it sort of made me think about, you know... How you, Anya, and um, Ayan, and Lauren, and lots of people at 3CR and other activists are so present on social media, and how that seems to be such a fantastic alternative. You know, if we're not getting our voices heard in the mainstream, mm. using social media or using alternative platforms like 3CR are so important mm. in in trying to sort of shift the the national mm. conversation. It's yeah, but also really toxic. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you noticed how. Um, a few very prominent activists on Twitter, people of colour, obviously, um, have all sort of left Twitter recently after being um, 
you know, tormented and uh, receiving death threats and, you know, it's it's following them um, there as well and, yeah. you know, hurting their mental health and, yeah, yeah. it's basically a garbage pile of yeah. flaming, anyway, I wouldn't keep going on. <laughs> <laughs> we get the, yeah. yeah, so I guess it's, I mean, it's important work but then you shouldn't have to put up with that. Yeah, you know, in that yeah, and a lot of yeah. them are, you know, praised for being bold and, you don't. You shouldn't have to be bold about yeah. these things. You know, this is this is your life. You should just be able to live it and not yeah. have to stand up for it every single day. But that's yeah. that's what's happening. Absolutely. Mm. I mean, yeah. There's just so many things that this this issue raises questions about. Um, I think it's going to be an ongoing conversation for us mm. here. Sure. And um, I think we wanted to plug the. Uh, yeah. Show on Thursday. Yeah, nice segue. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of racism and <laughs> the national conversation being. Yeah, and, and how how do we change it? I think, yeah, a, a lot of these conversations about the, you know, hashtag African gangs have been happening without the voices of the people who are affected by it and who should be talking about it, really. So Thursday Breakfast on 3CR um, is hosting a very special show this Thursday, the 9th of August, 7 to 8.30 a.m. Um, it's called Enough is Enough. Um, beyond hashtag African gangs. Um, and they are going to do a live on air panel discussion about the everyday impacts of the hashtag African gangs narrative on community, connecting this to bigger issues of systemic racism, anti-blackness and colonization, and focusing on some of the incredible initiatives and stories from the African community here in Melbourne. Um, and they have an, a very impressive panel. Yeah? Uh, yeah. And the guests um, include, in no particular order, uh, Marka Maek, lawyer and co-campaigner behind the original Hashtag African Gang social media campaign, Deng Garang, social worker working with African young people in Melbourne's West, Mariki Onis, um, Gunajmara, yeah, <laughs> Gunai woman and co-founder of the Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance, Sabah Alamayu, founder of AfroHub and owner of Sabah's Ethiopian restaurant, oh, nice. highly recommend by yeah, the way, yeah. and Areej Noor, radio journalist oh, wow. and co-founder of African Artist Collective Still Nomads. Whoa. Super exciting. What a panel. Yeah. Yep. I'll definitely be tuning in. Yes. And we will share all this information on our Facebook page and Twitter and all of that as well. Yep. Um, yeah, so tune in. That's so exciting. Yeah, and I guess if you're frustrated like we are in terms of, you know, the way things roll mm. in the media, this seems to be a really important event to listen to, to hear, you know, mm. the perspectives of people that know a lot about what's going on and yeah. have a lot to say. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. So I guess for so Thursday breakfast, yeah. you can buy us coffee or a meal <laughs> anytime for, for plugging your show. <laughs> <laughs> you owe us big time. <laughs> We, there's also one other event that I wanted to mention quickly before we wrap up, and that's the Rise Ability Rights Book Launch, Booklet Launch. I'm sorry, it's um, it's an advocacy booklet made by Rise, uh, 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 concerning refugees and asylum seekers with disabilities. The document brings together the voices of Rise members and an analysis of non-intersectionality of the literature in the refugee and disability sectors. So it sounds like a really fantastic booklet mm. and a great event to go and check out. It's on August 14th at 6pm and it is in Melbourne. I wonder if there's a more specific... Anyway, you can go to their Facebook page for more information mm -hmm. about that. So thank you for listening today and thank you to all of our guests. It's been a great show mm. and we're really excited to come back next week with Full House. Yeah, <laughs> yeah hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so bye for now. <laughs>